Hi there, I'm Zadie, and welcome to Way Too Shy, the podcast where I tell interesting stories that I'm way too shy to share with anyone else. Since this is the first episode, let me share a little about myself. I'm a barista by trade and a writer on the side. I love learning about interesting things, but I have trouble telling other people about them because I'm super shy. So I've started this podcast to connect with other shy people. I hope that this way I can share all the interesting things I'm learning with someone else, even if I'm too shy to talk about it in person. So from a definitely shy person to a potentially shy listener, hello! I see you. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get right into today's story. It's late on March 31st. Bloody fingers of dawn have yet to rip open the night sky which hangs heavy over the house you recently renovated. It was just a cabin when you bought it, but now it's big enough for a family of four, spacious, well-kept, a Herculean task in the days before vacuums and lawnmowers. It's the 1800s and it's been a long day. You're looking forward to slipping into bed beside your husband, closing your eyes, falling into that space between waking and sleeping where dreams are made, but something hangs heavy on your mind. It's the knocking. You first heard it late at night, a night like this, thumpings and rappings in the small hours, long after your two youngest daughters have gone to bed. Your husband slept straight through it. And when you brought it to his attention, he dismissed it as the wind, or a tree branch, or some wild animal inside a space where he doesn't belong. But you have other ideas. You know that things that go bump in the night are more sinister than a squirrel in a crawl space. You have a feeling that makes the hairs on your arms rise, that makes chills course down your spine. On that evening of March 31st, You get what you thought you wanted, but soon desperately don't. Answers. The knockings are explained. It starts with a cry from upstairs. Your daughter Maggie and her sister Kate are calling out to you. Something incredible is happening, something you just have to witness. Your husband tramps up the stairs and you follow behind, upstairs to the girls' bedroom where they stand in night clothes, faces alive with excitement and nervous energy. Watch this, Maggie says, and calls out to the room. The 14-year-old girl seems vulnerable there in the middle of the empty space, reaching out to someone only she can see. Mr. Splitfoot, she shouts, do as I do, and she claps her hands together twice. For a moment, there is silence and all is still, and then suddenly, from within the wall, two loud, sharp knocks sound. Confused, shocked even, you wait for an explanation. But the girls continue. Maggie calling out for Mr. Splitfoot, who you and your husband know to be the devil, to count along with her. She claps again, once, twice, three, four times. You wait. Surely this is a trick. Surely another rap sounds from within the wooden wall. Once, twice, three, four times. Your husband may now have other opinions about squirrels trapped in attics. You certainly know in the pit of your stomach what made those noises. Spirits, here in your house. 
in your house, beside the two girls you have raised so tenderly. Kate and Maggie ask the spirits to continue its communication, to rap once for yes, twice for no. You watch on as the spirit begins to answer questions. Are you a man? Kate calls. A single sound confirms. Are you an injured man? Maggie asks. A single sound confirms. Are you a man murdered? Kate says. Your breath is caught in your throat. A single rap returns, and all at once you are convinced. The questions continue, but you are scarcely taking in this new information. The fact the man was a peddler, murdered in your home five years previously. The fact that he has been calling out for justice, for someone to find his buried bones. Your daughters are acting as conduits to that space beyond the veil. That space where you had hoped, by now, you'd be finding dreams to last through the night. At the end of your children's gleeful demonstration, your husband makes a swift and solid decision. You are all going to leave, and soon. The home will soon stand empty. Maggie and Kate, though you do not know it, are about to be propelled on a journey of epic proportion. Some will doubt their abilities. Some will worship at their feet. Some will simply turn the other way and call it hysteria. You do not know this as you pack your things. You also do not know the deep under you. In 1904, another discovery just as startling as Mr. Splitfoot will be made. Children playing in the remains of your home will come across something buried in the basement, a complete human skeleton and a peddler's trunk. You are Margareta Fox, and this podcast is the story of your daughters, Kate and Maggie, spiritualists, performers, and communicators with those beyond this life. The performance given by Maggie and Kate in their childhood home may not have raised eyebrows in many places, but we should understand that the girls had performed their mysterious communications in the heart of something known as the Burnt Over District. Originally, the term was coined by a traveling evangelicalist named Charles Grant Sinfini to describe the religious fervor that burned within the specific area between Lake Erie and the Adirondack Mountains. It was originally meant as an insult, a sort of way to make fun of the tenets of religious ideologies springing forth from fertile ground but it caught on and stuck around. And even today, it's used with some fondness for a place that spawned religious movement after religious movement. Prominent among these movements, communes, and cults are Mormonism, founded by Joseph Smith, the Oneida community, founded by John Humphrey Noyes, and the Agapa Mennonites, a community founded by Henry Prince, a man said to be so charismatic that one woman broke out of a mental hospital to become his spiritual wife. Anything went in the burnt-over district, and two girls who could talk to spirits seemed as reliable as a man who could coax depressives from the safety of an asylum. When the family left the house, the Foxes sent their two young daughters to their eldest sister's house, Leah Fox, who lived in Rochester, also in the heart of the burnt-over district. Leah was a shrewd businesswoman, and immediately saw both a spiritual phenomenon and a way to earn some quick cash. She brought her sister's performances to the attention of two influential people, Isaac and Amy Post. If Isaac and Amy's names found familiar, it's with good reason. Isaac and Amy were part of Quakerism, another new religious movement founded near the Burnt Over District. 
However, they were also political radicals and sought to help align the movement of Quakerism with leftist causes such as the abolition movement and the fight for women's rights. Today, Quakers have been active in helping ending slavery, form suffrage for women, and so much more, and a large part of that commitment to helping others who are suffering should be laid at the feet of Isaac and Amy Post. Isaac and Amy themselves were also no strangers to suffering. They had lost a daughter early on in their lives and missed her dearly. Perhaps they saw in Maggie and Kate what they had lost. Either way, they were eager to see if the girls could perform the feat again and invited them to their own home to do a demonstration. There they held a dinner party and the Fox girls, Leah, Kate, and Maggie attempted to make contact with the other side. To the shock and delight of the room, it did not take long to establish a connection. Isaac himself was initially skeptical of what he was seeing, but he was completely won over by the end of the girls' demonstration. He described the noises as, quote, distinct thumpings under the floor, and how the Fox Girls has received several apparent answers to their questions to the spirit realm. To follow this up, Leia then acted as a medium and conducted a seance, contacting none other than the Post's deceased daughter. The party was in love with the Fox Sisters, and it won the trio of girls instant celebrity. It was a life-changing night for more people than the foxes. The posts were eager to share the gift of these girls with more people, and so they rented out the largest venue Rochester had to offer, the Corinthian Hall. A behemoth of a building, the Corinthian Hall has played host to some of the most famous orators in American history and holds, at capacity, over 400 people. The night of their performance, audience members turned out in droves, filling the hall to capacity. Spiritualists, skeptics, and everyone in between was packed together in the Corinthian Hall, shoulder to shoulder, breath heating up the space between them. They were eager for something otherworldly, hungry for something incredible, and they were not about to be disappointed. Maggie and Kate took center stage and began to ask spirits questions. They answered in the familiar raps coming from beneath floorboards and behind walls. The audience was spellbound, even the skeptics finding it hard to take their eyes off the pair of children performing in front of them. Following this, their sister Leia took the stage and performed a full scene where she contacted relatives of members of the audience. After they finished, the three girls entered a side room where Amy Post stripped off their clothes to reveal that no instruments or apparatuses had been used to make the noises, hidden by their voluminous skirts. Amy Post declared the show to be real, no equipment of any kind revealed by the undressing. After an eruption of applause that one can only imagine to be deafening, the girls took a bow and left the venue. What was next? Rochester seemed small when considering the scale such an act could affect. While Maggie and Kate were slightly uneasy with their rising level of stardom, Leia took to it like a duck to water. She acted as their manager and soon set up their next performance. The venue was, perhaps not inappropriately, Barnum's Hotel, owned by a cousin of the famous P.T. Barnum. You know, a million dreams is all it's gonna take, and all that. A million dreams seemed to be coming true for the Fox sisters, one might add. They gave three performances a day, attended by as many as 30 people each. Admission was a hefty price tag, to be sure. But who can put a price on communicating with the undead? Well, it would appear Leah Fox could. That price was $1, equivalent to roughly $31 in today's money. 
and what a value. For $31, some of the biggest names of the age came to see the girls talk to spirits. Among the guests were William Cullen Bryant, a key and influential editor of the major news outlet The New York Evening Post, George Bancroft, the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, James Fenimore Cooper, author of Last of the Mohicans, and Sojourner Truth, the incredible African-American abolitionist and women's rights activist. It's insane when you think about it. These types of people gathering in a small hotel showroom to watch two girls make rapping noises that were supposedly coming from the other side. But the show took off like wildfire. However far-fetched the concept, in execution, the show was a masterpiece. The girls' rising fame soon propelled them beyond the limits of the Barnum Hotel and out onto the road for a national tour. Leah arranged for stops in Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus, St. Louis, and Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia, each show a performance for hundreds, with the sisters traveled a new religious movement, spiritualism. The belief that those who passed on could be contacted by psychics and mediums in order to provide advice for the living. The Fox sisters often contacted spirits about matters as simple as the stock market or if a couple should get married, or as complex and important as matters as religious events in history. The girls were sensations, and as we know today, that has a flip side. With every act that seems to defy the laws of nature, there are skeptics ready to disprove it. And the Fox sisters were no exception. Key among these skeptics was Alicia Kent Kane, a man of science and an Arctic explorer. He saw the girls act tens of times, but failed to come up with any evidence that they were faking it. Despite not developing a case against the Fox sisters, Alicia found himself developing something else, feelings for Maggie. He soon asked her out on a date, where he confessed to her that he felt the girls were embroiled in a fraud. Despite his lack of proof, he felt strongly that Leia was using Maggie and Kate as moneymakers, and that they were faking their communication with spirits. He had no way to prove it, he just felt it deep in his soul. Maggie, surprisingly, was enamored of Alicia. Perhaps it was his undeniably handsome face, perhaps it was his tales of the Arctic and his adventures in the pursuit of truth for science's sake, or perhaps they simply clicked. But one thing led to another, and in short order, Alicia asked Maggie for her hand in marriage. Maggie not only agreed to the union, she converted to Roman Catholicism and gave up spiritualism altogether for her beloved husband. Her sister did not hold her back, and at this point they split, one to the side of Christianity, the other falling ever deeper and deeper into the growing spiritualist movement. Kate also found her Prince Charming, but her Prince Charming was a devoted spiritualist. He encouraged her interests in spirits, and Kate struck out on her own to become a professional medium. Her seances grew more sensational year by year and included writing things with her eyes shut and making blank cards suddenly appear with words written on them. At one or two events, she summoned a full-bodied apparition. That is to say, she made an entire ghost appear. Her act was a huge success, and spiritualism was only growing in popularity. As Kate conjured the past out of thin air, the spiritualist movement swelled to 8 million followers, an impressive sum in a country that currently had a population a literal over 50 million. Seances abounded, and mediums appeared in droves, coming from all corners of these great United States. In every way, it would seem that Kate had been poised for greatness, and Maggie had married a loving man. Leah was making her way in the world as a medium. Things seemed perfect. 
but only from the outside, of course. From the inside, the lives of the Fox sisters were far less rosy. All that glitters is not gold, as they say. Kate and Maggie had grown up with almost no adult supervision, relying on their eldest sister for most things. Leia was responsible, but not the mothering type, so the girls had been largely on their own. At a young age, both began to drink heavily, and by the time they were of legal drinking age, they were alcoholics. Kate's alcoholism was especially bad, though, leading to a feud between Leia and Kate. Leia believed that Kate was so consistently and severely drunk that she was not fit to be a mother to her two young children. As a woman in those days, such an attack was life-changing. Kate was furious with her sister. Maggie could only watch on, her marriage to Alicia still smooth sailing despite her own drinking habit. It was not until Maggie decided to take the stage herself once more that the feud came to a head. But what a head it came to. In apparent response to Leia's accusations of Kate, Maggie agreed to give an exclusive interview to the New York World on October 21st, 1888. It was a game changer. Kate did not cut an impressive figure on the stage, but was a quiet presence sitting in front of her microphone. Her interviewer was eager for the answers he had been promised. After all, he had paid good money for them. The New York World had given Maggie a total of $1,500, which would be equivalent to $43,000 in today's money. Maggie came up to the microphone, voice steady, and began to speak. I do this, she said because I consider it my duty, a sacred thing, a holy mission to expose spiritualism. In this moment, with her sister Kate watching on, Maggie toppled the two Foxes girls' legacy to the ground. Like glasses falling from a pyramid, the otherworldly phenomenon they had worked so hard to demonstrate were shattered in an instant as Maggie continued. It was all a hoax, she said, and her sister said nothing but nodded, lips pressed tight together. It started as a simple prank. Her sister and Maggie would tie an apple to a string and pass it through a hole in the wall. Then they would scare their mother by creating knocks and bangs by moving the apple around in the wall. Their mother thought the girls were far too young to play any pranks and believed the sounds were from unrestful spirits haunting her family's home. As the sisters grew, they found the new trick, cracking their joints. By strategically cracking the joints in their legs and feet, they were able to make it sound as though an invisible hand was knocking on the wall or floor. They stayed up late into the night playing the game until the eve of April Fool's Day, 1848, when they decided to trick their parents with their joints. Only, it hadn't gone as planned. The girls had demonstrated their trick, expecting a good laugh and then a return to normalcy. Instead, they were swept up into a machine they didn't even realize they were constructing. Their sister Leia swooped down on them and began to market the trio of sisters as a business. The crowd was hushed and wide-eyed. Maggie had just admitted what so many skeptics had shouted through the years. The Fox sisters were nothing more than two girls who had gotten caught up in make-believe. The spiritualist community was aghast at the speech. One reporter called it a death blow to the budding religious movement. But people aren't often eager to admit they've been fooled. The death blow didn't fall. Instead, people moved on as if Maggie had never confessed. 
Kate continued to work as a medium to great success, and Maggie's attempt to expose mediumship as hocus-pocus and fakery fell on deaf ears. It was much more fun to believe in ghosts and spirits than it was to believe that two girls had managed to con an entire nation using the joints in their toes. Maggie's holy mission went unfulfilled. Spiritualism continued to thrive. Maggie never reconciled with her sister Leia, who passed a short time before Kate in 1890. Kate would eventually pass away in 1892 while on a drinking binge. Maggie, heartbroken, would die just one year later in 1893. There are some who believe Maggie's confession was a lie. In fact, Maggie herself recanted the confession two years later. She said that spirits had told her to confess, but in the end she believed in the other world. It won her favor with the spiritualist community again, and when she died, over a thousand spiritualist mourners attended her funeral dressed all in black. What of this, though? Was there any truth to the sisters' act? Why would Maggie confess and then recant? I wish, listener, that there was a fanciful story to satisfy these questions, some kind of wild adventure or fairy tale turned true. But in reality, the answers are very pedestrian, and the best place to start unwinding the hopes of the Fox sisters is with the bones of the peddler found in their home alongside the peddler's trunk. Had you forgotten that detail? Yes, in 1904, children were playing near the Fox's house, colloquially called the Spook House. They made their way through the dilapidated ruins down to the basement where cobwebs and dark corners made them shiver with fear and excitement. The game continued until a just shocking discovery was made. A human skeleton boarded up between two walls. One might imagine children running shrieking from the spook house, a classic case of boy who cried wolf. Who would believe there was an actual body in the house that everyone attributed ghosts to? But a skeleton there was, and apparently a trunk too. According to a Boston newspaper at the time, the Rosanes bore a resemblance to a peddler who had gone missing five years before the raps of the Fox sisters gave away the location of his buried bones. The paper called it conclusive proof that the Fox sisters were true mediums. Who could dispute the story of a murdered peddler now that the body had been found? Well, as it would turn out, most people. The body was not a complete skeleton as reported, but a random assortment of bones in all the wrong quantities. There were duplicate ribs and vertebrae. It was more than clear that someone had dug up some bones from a cemetery and put them in the spook house. On top of all this, the remaining bones, the majority of them, were from a chicken. As for the trunk, that was investigated by Dr. Joe Nickel, PhD, who found the trunk in a museum of spiritualism. When pressed, the curator of the museum confessed there was not only no proof the trunk was discovered in 1904, there was no proof it had been found at the Fox's old home at all. It had been said this was the case when the trunk was donated, but that was all they had to go on. As Nickel aptly puts it, the best evidence indicates the peddler's bones were a hoax. So we have a hoax within a hoax. But why then did Maggie recant her confession? This too has an unremarkable answer. Maggie's husband died shortly after her confession. She found herself a widow with no skill or trade and an ever-dwindling fortune. With children to look after and a house to maintain, she needed money and she needed it fast. But what could a woman with no trade do? She went back to the only occupation she had ever held, a medium. 
She recanted her confession and picked up where she left off. One can imagine the self-loathing Maggie must have felt as she worked, knowing she was a fraud and yet trapped in the cycle of mediumship and spiritualism to keep her family and herself alive. We should not judge the foxes too harshly. Their story is, in the end, a tragic one. Maggie and Kate really were two little girls whose imaginations got away from them. Most children imagine a boogeyman, and these girls went a step further, dreaming up a way to talk to him. They had no way of knowing the chaos and fame it would bring them. Spiritualism is, at its core, a search for answers in the hope that answers will guide us to a better life. And yet, in the case of the Fox sisters, no answers seems to have brought them peace. The case of the Fox sisters is a grim reminder of how fast things can spiral out of control and how the fervor of belief can span a spark into a roaring bonfire. of the Fox sisters, two girls caught up in a crazy whirlwind of spiritualism and ghosts. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Way Too Shy. I hope you've enjoyed the story, despite its grim nature. If you enjoyed the podcast or would like to leave a comment, please leave a review. Also, if you have an idea for a topic you would like covered in the podcast, please leave me a comment on this episode. I would love to hear from you. And I hope you'll join in on the next broadcast, where we'll explore modern witchcraft, Satanism, and the largest pagan gathering in the world. It's going to be a fun, and dare I say, magical time. Hope to see you there. I'm Zadie, and this has been Way Too Shy. Stay cool, listener, and have a good day.